Nobody has more respect for women than I do. Nobody. Hillary Clinton wants to abolish it, believe me. She wants to abolish our Second Amendment. I think they didn't deny it. I don't think anybody denied it. Other presidents did not call, did write letters, and some presidents didn't do anything. Many people have come out and said, I'm right. You really do have to ask yourself, where does it stop? Hello and welcome to Fallacious Trump, the podcast where we use the insane ramblings of President Munchausen to explain logical fallacies. I'm your host, Jim. And I'm your other host, Mark. A logical fallacy is an error in reasoning that results in bad or invalid arguments. The logical fallacy we're looking at this week is poisoning the well, also known as smear tactics. So we've talked about a lot of the underlying things about poisoning the well before, because basically Mm -hmm. this is really an ad hominem fallacy. But right. the key that makes it different is that this is an attack on a person uh, in advance. So it's it's before you get a chance to hear what the what argument the person is going to make, we okay. poison the well by uh, saying negative things about them. Yeah. Um, so they're so not they, even there in the first place. I mean, they can be. It could be in a debate if it was uh, just the the thing that the first person said, like you know, John's about to tell you some nonsense oh, okay. about how this yeah. works, um, or in a you know, it very frequently happens in court cases when the right. the first person to give their opening arguments will will say, you know, the defence is about to lay out this ridiculous case, which is going to ask you to yep. believe all these preposterous things. Yep. It's that exactly poisoning the well. That that's that's telling you in advance that you really shouldn't believe what they're going to say because it's all yeah, going to be yeah. nonsense. And so it's, it's, it is very much, it, it's, it can be about saying that the argument is going to be wrong, but it's much more common to say, um, you shouldn't believe this person because, mm-hmm. uh, um, attacking the kind of person they are. Okay. So our first example from Trump is from the uh, GOP convention in July of 2017, uh, where he said this. So if you want to hear the corporate spin, the carefully crafted lies and the media myths, the Democrats are holding their convention next week. Go there. So, <laughs> it's, a that, classic, it's a classic gag set really, isn't yes, it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, he's, he's making it very clear that, that if you don't want to believe anything the Democrats are going to say next week. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. he doesn't know what they're going to say, but he's setting <laughs> it up so that no, you you know you shouldn't believe it because it it will be nonsense basically. He's he's also got his um, plausible deniability in there because if if he's if push comes to shove he will deny that he ever made any kind of link between the two. He just says you know if you want it, want to hear corporate lies the media myths the Democrats are holding their convention next week go there. So the implication is that but it's it just amount of just the right amount of trump to plausible deniability so he can They're say almost like separate yeah yeah, statements, yeah. yeah. In, in case somebody says yeah but you liked wikileaks in 2016 <laughs> so no no, no 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 i was making a joke making a joke <laughs> yeah yeah several yeah. several very similar jokes over a period of time yeah yeah um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> So uh, the second example from Trump is actually uh, a bit more wide ranging. I've picked one specific example, but this has gone on and on and on (laughs) and on over two years. And it is about how awful the Mueller team are and how basically you shouldn't believe whatever they come out with. You definitely shouldn't believe it. And this this changed slightly after the the bar summary said actually the Mueller report exonerated Trump yeah, which yeah, it didn't yeah. but <laughs> um but yeah so suddenly the the claim that you shouldn't believe whatever the Mueller report says 
didn't make so much sense to him. Mm-hmm. But um, but for, for a long time, he was saying this. But the person that appointed Robert Mueller never received a vote. Robert Mueller put 13 of the angriest Democrats in the history of our country on the commission. Now, how do you do that? These are angry, angry people. You take a look at them. One of them was involved with the Hillary Clinton Foundation running it. Another one has perhaps the worst reputation of any human being I've ever seen. All killers. In fact, it would have been actually better for them if they put half and half, and Mueller can do whatever he wants anyway, which he'll probably do. But we have conflicts. I had a nasty business transaction with Robert Mueller a number of years ago. I said, why isn't that mentioned? Just goes on and on, doesn't it? Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He's setting yeah. up in advance that these people should not be trusted. They shouldn't be listened to. Yeah. They're, they're, they're conflicted. They're against me. They are, they're not elected. Um, basically, everything yeah. you can think of to say... Don't listen to what they're definitely going to say, which is that I committed crimes. Yeah, because <laughs> they're despicable. Um, they're the most despicable person, like the human being I've ever met in my entire life, or I've ever yeah, seen that, in my entire life. It's obviously got bizarre. no mirrors in the White House. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't say who that was, so we can't speak no. to that directly. But the person that he's talking about, who was uh, who was in charge of running mm. the Clinton Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, He's talking about Jeannie Ree, who is a prosecutor on the Mueller team. She right. worked as outside counsel on behalf of the Clinton Foundation on one case. Right. Uh, which was a, a lawsuit against the Clinton Foundation in 2015, which was dismissed. She was she never worked for the Clinton Foundation. Uh, she was certainly never in charge of it or helped run it in any yep. way. Uh, she's never been an employee there. She just she worked on a single case. As for his business dispute, his nasty business mm. dispute with Mueller. Mm. Which he seems to imply was all Mueller's fault and therefore yeah, but, but, not... And, the, and he's not. saying that basically, you know, that because because of this nasty business dispute that they had a few years ago, Mueller is obviously, um, you know, out to get him yeah. as revenge. Yeah. Um, this is about... Mueller used to be a member at one of Trump's golf courses. Right. And uh, he left. He resigned his membership and he wrote a letter requesting mm-hmm. his dues that he'd paid be refunded. Fair uh, and yeah. he never heard back. Mm-hmm. And that is the end of the dispute. <laughs> oh, not much of a dispute then. Not, it was not really, more, no. more like I've, I've finished my membership before the year is up. So yeah. I've, please can know, I have, please can I have back? The, the several months that I've got left? Cause I'm not going to take it. Can I have that? And then, <laughs> And then heard nothing back. Well, there's not, there's no dispute going on at all, is there? It's yeah. not, not unless you assume that the if the membership was like I don't know a hundred dollars bit that he didn't get back or something like that, that that is enough to make him spend two years of his life trying to bring down the man <laughs> the who owned the golf course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we know what he's like, so it wouldn't you could it was it's understandable. But yeah, very. Mm, very very odd, but there's, but there's kind of, but there's no dispute going on. There's not some. No. It's not bad business. It will no, be it's bad not like if they went to if, court or yes, exactly. You know, murdered his sister or you know, yeah. it's not <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or you know, crashed a few golf carts into the yeah. the clubhouse or anything like that. Didn't do that. No, they didn't. No. They didn't have a nasty business dispute. 
No. He, he stopped being a customer of Trump's, basically. Exactly. Which, you know, and asked for his money back, which yeah. in Trump's eyes, you know, once the it's, it's all my money. You can't have it back. That's yeah. the that's the nasty dispute, disputational behavior. <laughs> so finally, in the Trump section, we've got think, a thing that started coming up again in advance of the 2020 elections. Mm-hmm. This is what he was doing um, before the 2016 elections. In, in August 2016, Trump was repeatedly claiming that the Democrats were definitely going to cheat, basically. And yeah. that was why he was probably going to lose, essentially, because everyone yeah. thought he was going to lose at that point. So he was getting in front of that and saying, you know, the only reason I would lose is, is the only possible chance. In fact, he said in uh, at a rally in Pennsylvania, yeah. he said, she can't beat what's happening here. The only way she can beat it, in my opinion, and I mean this 100%, if in certain sections of the state they cheat, okay? So... <laughs> He's he's setting up so that if he wins, he's beaten the people who are trying to cheat him, and if he loses, it's because it's only they because they cheated. were cheating. Yeah, but but it's only his opinion. Oh yeah. So he's he's setting There's it up. Absolutely he's, no evidence for it whatsoever. No, but and he's he's a hundred percent. What what does he say? He's a, I'm a hundred percent clear on the fact. Serious, that this yeah. Hundred percent serious. That this is my opinion. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, uh, yeah. But that doesn't lend any more credence to the fact that it's just your opinion. And we can see exactly what you're doing, which is set us up to go, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, of course they're going to cheat you. And But if you win... Well, if you, is it you, it's win-win, because if you win, then you've beaten the people who, who you know couldn't even win by cheating, basically. Yeah, and yeah. he started doing this again in 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 the run up to twenty twenty. Right. He started saying, you know, we need to we need to be extra careful and cautious because the Democrats are going to cheat, basically. Um, and I, it will, I'm sure, it will happen. It will ramp up. And now I'm doing it, <laughs> saying what Trump is <laughs> going is. to do. But, but one, I, yeah. I I I would not be surprised to see uh, this this uh, increase in frequency that I am saying yeah. as as we get closer and closer to the election you know the only way we're going to lose the only way the democrats will lose uh, the, the republicans will lose is if the democrats cheat mm. um and that you know there's no you, there's no comeback to it because no all we can say all the democrats can say is well we're not cheating we haven't cheated you haven't got any, any evidence at all that that any democrats cheated we have got evidence that republicans cheated in the midterms yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there have been lawsuits about it, but uh, you know, there's there's no there's no real counter to it because it's because it's happening before the argument's even been made. Yeah. So the so even the the investigation into the um, you know the duplicate voters and the the non-existent voters that were voting last time came out yeah. with you know hundreds, if not tens. Of people in the whole of out of his three million people voted illegally, it was about ten. It's like sixteen, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like that. And, and that, that was not that, not not elite, not willful, not deliberate, voters necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he's kind of you know he's ignoring the fact that, of course, because he's he just it didn't go in his favour. So that's fake news. So he's going to trot that out again yeah there we are we're doing it we're poisoning the well already but but the well is so filled with strychnine we are we are predicting the future based on the past (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Which is which is reasonable. It's it's stuff that he's done before. It's not wouldn't be surprising if he does it again. And and yeah. it seems at least that the reason he started doing it already is because um it's not it's not looking good for him based on his midterm performance. Mm. So mm. um yeah, it's it it is to say that this is something he's going to do possibly fallacious but um it's it's something that we can it's yeah we, isn't, we'll, see, isn't, we'll see what isn't, happens isn't there some element of the poisoning the well that the um the allegations that you're making against the person who's about to speak are without foundation and you know without grounds yeah. certainly certainly I mean, your you're pulling the ground out from under them before they've yeah, even as, as with all these things it's a it's a level uh, a gradation so mm. Um, yeah, the, the more you're saying it without foundation, the more fallacious it's likely to be. Mm. It wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be out of character. Let's put it's it in, that way. In, <laughs> in a way, he's kind of poisoned his own well because he kind of, he can't stand up and say, I am, you know, uh, I have a clean slate here. I'm completely blameless. Well, certainly, as we'll find out in a minute, my examples in the British politics do kind of have a hint of that, that there's a a main maintenance of one's own innocence in this thing whilst heaping the blame on everybody else in every way that you could possibly well, think of. like that, let's get to it. And now is the time, I think, for Mark's British politics corner. So um, I've, I have recourse to the innocent of innocence um, who's only doing her best for us all uh, in order to enact the will of the people, Theresa May. Um, so the clip that I'm going to play, um, will come to shortly, is the speech that she made to the nation following the failure to get her deal through for a second time. And just to kind of keep you up to date with what the timeline of events were, this all happened so quickly, I'd actually forgotten where we were in the scheme of things. Fortunately, there's a page on Wikipedia, which is which kind of talks about the, the timeline of events for Brexit, and it's gone through with a, a rapid um, bunch of stuff. So, um, so in January, there was the first meaningful vote on May's deal. Uh, so May had constructed this deal with the EU which she, she that she was going to present to the EU which said this is how we're going to leave the European Union um, and I'm going to deliver Brexit on this basis. Her own cabinet for a couple of hours went, yeah, all right, that's really good. And then several people resigned afterwards saying it was awful. Uh, in On the 15th of January, she put it to the to Parliament and lost by the biggest loss in political history. <laughs> so, um, and then there was several um, amendments to the to the various bits of deal that went on. She then brought the the self same deal back on the twelfth of March, which lost again. Um, then that was followed by a vote on whether a no deal um, was acceptable on the 13th of March, and then there was a vote on getting Parliament, so the Parliament by this time had taken over the business of Brexit from the government, and Parliament itself put through a vote to say we must extend Article 50, which is the date when we're going to leave, because we haven't got a fucking deal in place. We can't agree the deal. We can't agree no deal. We've got to come up with something else, um, and we can't just crash out. 
So that's where we're the clip that we're going to hear is after those things have failed. And during Prime Minister's question time on March the 20th, Ken Clark MP, who's a Tory MP and father of the House, so he's kind of one of the oldest serving MPs in the House of Commons, um, said this. This House has voted clearly uh, to reject leaving with no deal and it's voted clearly uh, to seek an extension if her withdrawal agreement cannot get a majority. But this House has not yet had the opportunity to debate and vote on the range of options for long-term arrangements. So would she arrange next week for indicative votes finally to be held so we can see where the consensus where the majority lies. So this is um, Ken Clark saying, OK, you've presented your deal. We don't like it. it vo- it's lost twice. Um, we voted against no deal. So we've got to have some sort of deal um, and not the one you, you've, you're presenting. And we're not going to crash out by default because we've extended the date at which we're going to leave. So he's saying accept some sort of defeat here, would you, Prime Minister? Just be a bit flexible and maybe what we could do is allow the Houses of Parliament to come up with some other suggestions that aren't your deal and that aren't no deal. We know what they are. We don't want either of them. So let us, as a Parliament... um, suggest some suggestions and then vote on those to see where the consensus lies and where in which direction we might move. You would kind of think that's a pretty sensible thing to do. You know, let's find out what the mood is, what things are important. It's been two years uh, as representatives of our constituents. We've probably got something to add to what ought to be in the deal, uh, what ought not to be in the deal, rather than just accept your one each time you present it to us. Seems reasonable. Uh, not an un- yeah. it's not an unreasonable thing. Theresa May's response uh, was that evening to make a speech. She kind of appeared, it's like a party political broadcast. She appeared on the news in between two British, you know, uh, uh, between two union flags at a lectern and said various things, the most poisonous of which I would suggest is the following. And of this I am absolutely sure. You, the public, have had enough. You're tired of the infighting. You're tired of the political games and the arcane procedural rows. Tired of MPs talking about nothing else but Brexit, when you have real concerns about our children's schools, our national health service, knife crime... You want this stage of the Brexit process to be over and done with. I agree. I am on your side. It is now time for MPs to decide. So far, Parliament has done everything possible to avoid making a choice. Motion after motion and amendment after amendment has been tabled without Parliament ever deciding what it wants. All MPs have been willing to say is what they do not want. I passionately hope MPs will find a way to back the deal I've negotiated with the EU. So basically what she's doing is setting up the MPs as the enemies of the people. What she's saying is 
Um, they are going through this tiresome rigmarole, this arcane uh, parliamentary procedures. They're voting against everything left, right and centre. They have decided what they don't want, but they're not willing to tell us what they do want. Meanwhile, my poor, lovely, shiny deal is being trampled underfoot, and I'm passionate about delivering to you, the British people, what you've asked for, this deal. Completely oblivious of the fact that it's failed twice and will go on to fail a third time at this point. So she's setting up anything that the MPs will say in the future as being against what the public want. She is on your, I am on your side, she says. And plainly she's on the side of of nobody at all because they've all voted against it. So you think, what the hell are you doing, woman? So it was, and in fact, the the beauty of this was the New Yorker uh, newspaper reported that various uh, MPs, reacted to this for the poisoning of the well it was that they've that they've spotted that they're pitting parliament against the people and in this current environment which is you know the where the leavers and the remainers are um you know open warfare is a very dangerous thing to do it's a bit like the um we talked about it in an episode some time ago when uh, a newspaper called the judges that said yes it is possible to have a um, judicial decision on whether article 50 is able to be revoked so whether what was the legal basis for setting up the brexit and the judges that said yes we will talk about that were named and shamed on the front page of the daily mail as enemies of the people and here's theresa may doing that to the very people that she wants to vote her deal through yeah, they voted, it's a they bit didn't. bizarre. It is. <laughs> but yeah, she's mad. absolutely. She's saying, you know, if there really, if there's any more discussion of this, if there's, if any MPs still have questions or or have things they they think could make it better or anything like that, mm. they're just causing trouble. What you want them to do, British public, is just vote on it and just say yes yeah. to it because it's, that's the only thing that is is going to make it all go away. Yeah. And uh, bless him, John Burko, who's kind of the the star of the hour. He's the speaker of the Commons. He's basically the referee. Um, when they all came, when they came into the uh, the chamber on Thursday, he said, "None of you is a traitor. The sole duty of every member of Parliament is to do what he or she thinks is right." So he's kind of um, taking her to task as well, and that kind of countering what she's proposing which is that they're all um they're not they're none of them to be trusted they're enemies of the people and for the prime minister to go on tv and say that her own cabinet members of her own cabinet members of her own party are against her i mean they are <laughs> yeah, yeah, but to it's actually more so now though. Yeah, so <laughs> yes, exactly. But but they but they you know eighty percent of them voted for the deal. Yeah. It's just that everybody else in the other party, in the opposition, clues in the name, in the opposition voted it down. Thirty four of our own MPs voted it down in the last um, meaningful the latest vote. one. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's almost. 
kind of Caligula. It's it's like you know et tu brute. It's that kind of infamy, infamy. Everyone's they've all got an infamy. It's <laughs> you know I am the poor bleeding martyr. There's, here. there's a there's a collision of cultures there, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> Shakespeare and Carry On films. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's all the same. It's all the same. So my uh, second one, just bringing it right up to date, this Sunday just gone, the 14th of April, um, Ian Duncan Smith, who is the former Tory party leader, was being interviewed because the polls, not unsurprisingly perhaps, um, are showing these days that the Labour Party is way ahead and that the next Prime Minister... Uh, is likely to be Jeremy Corbyn, the next leader of the Tory party, is likely to be Jeremy Corbyn, um, who's the leader of the Labour Party. And um, so what Ian Duncan Smith does is is talking about why um, nobody wants to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. He's poisoning the Corbyn well um, in this interview on Sky TV. I just cannot conceive the British public with Jeremy Corbyn's background and a party that is marred in <clears throat> charges of anti-Semitism uh, and really ghastly misogyny and various other problems that they've got going on, a man who backs the Venezuela dictator who's been murdering his own people, all of these things will come home to roost. But I mean, the problem is, Jeremy Corbyn will probably dispute with some well, of the pictures you're Well, he may dispute it or not, there. but he, he, he stands charged with supporting Maduro. Uh, when the rest of the world says Maduro must go in Venezuela. But, you know, it's a kind of Marxism. And, and my point about this is whether people like it or they don't like it, uh, none of that will be on display because it's all about Brexit at the moment. It's all about whether the Conservatives have delivered. So the, um, it's, it's hilarious because he's kind of, um, he says, well, it's, it's kind of Marxism. It's, it's when you take this stuff at face value and you listen to what they're saying, you realise that as politicians, you you're not afforded the luxury of just talking bollocks. You you've got to think about everything that you're saying, because because when um, Sophie Ridge, whose program it is, says, "Well, I think he'll dispute that," he says, "Ah, oh, well, you know, he can dispute it all he like." He stands accused of supporting the Venezuelan of that. Yeah, but that's. But he doesn't. He just stands accused well, of it. He does. Ian Duncan Smith just accused him of it. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he stands... I mean, he he doesn't actually support him, but he stands accused of it. So I'm just... Yeah, you're... So that makes him untrustworthy. But the the thing about it is... It's delightful because he, he shoves in all these kind of irrelevant smears. And then he says, actually, all of that is irrelevant because people are just not going to vote for us because we haven't delivered Brexit. So he's doing the, as much poisoning as he possibly can, knowing full well that it's, it is, nobody's going to take any notice. So it's the, if, if the, um, my sense of doing the poisoning the well bit is that you've got to call upon as much muck as you can and fling it in that direction so that people go, oh, I'm not going to, vote for them or listen to what they've got to say, they're covered in muck. Um, but it, then he, by his own admission, says, oh, there's all sorts of you know awful misogyny and all sorts of other things that I can't even make up. 
he then says it, it's not going to make any difference because we're so mired in the in the dirt <laughs> because we can't deliver Brexit. So for me, that's the it is the perfect uh, poisoning of the well with irrelevant stuff because he then says it's irrelevant. So what what is an effective counter to this stuff? Uh, what would be I'm, the counter I'm, to? I've got nothing this time. <laughs> it's um, <laughs> it's one of those ones where. If people have a good enough memory, mm. then then when it proves not to be true, they will mm. remember that someone said it. Or if in in politics and in things like that, if the media hold people to account, if if yeah. when something yeah. happens, people can. Yeah. Uh, obviously, things like the the, the election is going to be rigged. Bit is a lot mm. harder because of the conspiracy theory thinking, because of yeah. the fact that it's unfalsifiable. You know, once the election has been held, if Trump doesn't win. He he gets to say, "See, I told you so." Yeah, and, and if he does win, it's a matter. So yeah, yeah, yeah. there isn't a counter yeah. to that one. It, yeah. We can just say, "Oh, don't be ridiculous," but it won't have any effect on the people who believe him. Where yeah. it is something like, um, you know, this this person's going to lie when they talk to, talk to you in a minute. Mm. Um, if that person, when they do talk, can prove what they have to say or back it up with evidence or or that kind of stuff, mm. then then that's a, you know, it's it's more kind of revenge is living well than a counter, really. So, yeah, yeah. there isn't there isn't much of an argument against that, unfortunately. Whereas uh, there are logical fallacies that are used between two people in, a, in an argument. This is another one of those ones mm. which is more commonly used um, to an audience. Right. And in that sense, although the, the victim of it can't be, can't counter it necessarily, mm. uh, it's useful when you're an audience member, as we all are yep. um, frequently, to try and remember that. And you can counter it in the sense by by not believing yeah. people who say their opponent is going to do something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, just, just be sceptical, basically, whenever... When everyone, anyone tells you how what, what someone else is going to do or say, yeah, just there's wait. the flag, wait. isn't it? That's the flag. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which says what I'm about to tell you about the other person. As soon as they do that, you kind of go, hmm, this is going to tell me more about you than it is about them. Beatles there with Wild Fallacy, which I think they redid it as Tomorrow Never Knows. But, uh, I was inspired by that because um, I've got a feed on my phone that uh, Sean Lennon, John Lennon's son, and his band, the the something Lennon Delirium, did a did a version of that with the bass player from Rush, I think, the, some 
thing. And and it was built, what was, I found it charming was it was built by the other member of the band saying, here's a clip of us playing Sean's dad's song, <laughs> which I thought was great, you know, but yeah. Excellent. So... In the fallacy in the wild, we like to talk about the fallacy of the week from a non-political perspective. Uh, we only have one example in this section this week, but mm-hmm. it's a it's such a good example that yep. I think that's fine. Um, yeah, this is from the film Mean Girls, and uh, it's um, basically Regina is at a party with her ex-boyfriend, uh, who Katie, the new girl. Um, has expressed an interest in basically mm-hmm. and um, Regina is jealous and so tells a story about mm-hmm. Katie you know that girl Katie yeah she's cool I invited her tonight well be careful because she has a huge crush on you really how do you know because she told me she tells everybody it's kind of cute actually she's like a little girl she like writes all over her notebook Mrs. Aaron Samuels and she made this t-shirt that says I heart Aaron and she wears it under all her clothes oh come on well who can blame her I mean you're gorgeous and okay look I'm not saying she's a stalker but she saved this Kleenex you used and she said she's gonna do some kind of African voodoo with it to make you like her what so <laughs> Regina is a, is fairly effectively putting Aaron off, Katie. There, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, just getting more and more outlandish, isn't it? Yeah, it starts off completely true. Katie yeah. does have a crush on on him, but yeah. um, but yeah, she takes it to an extreme where uh, where it's kind of designed to put him off, and and by the end of the party, um, Regina is kind of getting getting back with Kate uh, with Aaron, so. Well, you know, yeah, well, the telling line in there is, well, who, who could blame her? Because you're gorgeous. So you go, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, there's the, the one moment there. And it actually goes on to, she's got a T-shirt with I heart, whatever his name is, on Aaron. that she wears under all her yeah. clothes all the time. <laughs> and it's just going mad. And actually, having listening to that, I could see the shape of Trump's Muller thing you're kind of <laughs> playing out it, where it just gets more and more ridiculous and, and more yeah. and you think he's he trump is just a petulant teenager when it yeah. comes to that and yeah no you shouldn't listen to him because anyway and he, he poked yeah. me once he and told me you, yeah he hates you and, yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you smell <laughs> and muller does he does smell he smells lovely oh yeah yeah, yeah. So we're going we're gonna to play fake news, folks. I love the game. It's a great game. I understand the game as well as anybody. As well as anybody. Yes, it's time for fake news, the game where I read out three Trump quotes, two of which are real and one I made up, and Mark has to figure out which one is fake news. Yeah, and don't listen to anything that Jim's about to say uh, vis-a-vis my scoring thing, because he's just going to spin it in such a way that it makes me look like I'm terrible, you know, when uh, I've actually wait, got... So I was, was going to say that you're doing very, really well at the moment. Ah, um, ah, ah, I think we've hit upon the counter. (laughs) There it is. Because you could just say, oh, that's funny you should say that, because what I was going to say was (laughs) then you say something that that if it's thought of as a lie is actually a reverse insult. Maybe maybe that's why um, Muller decided to put in stuff about Trump not committing collusion. Yeah. Because... It's just he's countering all of the stuff that Trump's been saying all this yeah. time. 
Yeah, yeah. So he thought, right, well, I'll show him. He's saying, I'll don't believe him. a word that Muller says. Yeah. And he's saying, well, yeah, obviously he's not. <laughs> right. He didn't completely... do anything. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So uh, you're currently at exactly chance. 7 Yay. out of 21. Um, Brilliant. Now, if you don't win this one, uh-huh. then then you'll be 7 out of 22, which is 1 over pi. So, ah, I'm there of, you I'm, go. I'm, I'm kind of hoping but... for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because as so, we said before, it's a very compelling number. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So the uh, the theme uh, this week is mm-hmm. Freudian slips from okay. Trump that, that perhaps tell us more about what he's thinking than, uh, <laughs> than he might yeah. want to yeah, be revealed. Yeah. yeah. Statement number one. Since the founding of our nation, many of our greatest strides from gaining our independence to abolition of civil rights, to extending the vote for women, have been led by people of faith and started in prayer. Oh, no, he definitely said that. He's definitely, yeah. he's definitely said that. The abolition okay. of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have... And do you know what? They have been led by people of faith and started in yes, prayer. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Number two. Okay. Democrats won't stop until your taxes are higher, our borders are torn down, and illegal immigrants are allowed to vote because that's what they really want in the end. But neither will we. And <laughs> right. statement number three. <laughs> yeah. We need to get rid of chain migration, we need to get rid of catch and release and visa lottery, and we have to do something about asylum, and to be honest with you, we have to get rid of judges. <laughs> okay. Well, I think number three is so horrific, it's got to be true. The uh, um, founding of a nation of a great rise get all of that stuff, all those really good things. We started a people faith started in prayer. Oh, I love that bit. Democrats won't stop till the taxes are higher, borders, are, and neither will we. That is just brilliant. Um, okay, right, but, um, okay. I I think. I think number two is the one that you made up. Okay. So which uh, which one are you most confident? Okay. The one I'm most confident that he did say was number three. Okay. Get rid of so, judges. Yeah. Uh, statement number three. Yeah. Is. I've got everything crossed. Yeah. Real. Uh, no. So we need to get rid of chain migration. We need to get rid of catch and release and visa lottery, and we have to do something about asylum. And to be honest with you, I have to get rid of judges. <gasps> oh, no. And and does he have... No. And he doesn't have the self-awareness to kind of hear what he's saying and then yeah. at least momentarily look horrified and mortified and clap his hand to his mouth and kind of... You know, indicate. Yeah, no, you know, no, he doesn't do that. No, I no. Think, I think what he was going for was removing judges from the process of getting okay. people out of the country. Right. So I think, it just I think he was saying it down. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think he was saying that the immigration, the the deportation process was yeah. was slowed down by the fact that they have to go through courts and they should just basically get rid of them. Um, but but yeah, okay. yeah, you have to get rid of judges. Yes. Well, and he's done his best to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly judges that slow things down, yeah. you know, by weighing pros and cons and enacting the due process of law. It's kind <laughs> of, you know, 
that, yeah, I mean, after all, time is money and the due process of law can take up both of those. Yeah. So, right uh, okay. you think yeah. statement yep. number one I do. is real? The Abolition one where he said that abolition of civil rights was one of the greatest strides <laughs> since the founding of our nation. Yeah. <laughs> and statement number one... Oh, God, I hope it's real. <laughs> is real. Oh, my God, no! Since the founding of our nation, many of our greatest strides from gaining our independence to abolition of civil rights to extending the vote for women have been led by people of faith and started in prayer. No, he, it's, did, he did slow down in the second half of that, which makes me think maybe he did he hear himself listened, say it. And think, yeah, yeah. Is that right? Is that right? What have but I I'm just not said? sure. No. I mean, it could have just been he was having trouble reading the teleprompter. But Yeah, well, it's also, it, it, this is his, his serious presidential voice, yeah. <laughs> near, as we, near as we can get it. The, uh, this was a national prayer breakfast, he said. Yeah, this. and, and it, so he's kind of bigging up the fact that prayer is a good thing and yeah. people of faith are good. And I think <laughs> he was going for, uh, for two instead of of. So I think he was, gonna, he was supposed to be saying, uh, from gaining our independence to abolition, like of slaves, yeah. to civil rights, to yeah. extending the vote for women. Yeah. But he kind of ran them together and yeah. created that wonderful moment. And, and in, a, in a Freudian, in a true Freudian slip, the truth came out. Absolutely, that, yeah. Um, yeah, the abolition of civil rights. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest, Which the greatest he did stride. not say... He did not oh. say the Democrats won't stop until your taxes are higher. Uh, but neither it could easily have done because um, it's yeah, very well written. I love that, that little that little twist <laughs> at the end. And neither will we. That is great. I think um, I base that on in part on a George W. Bush line, which right. said something like "Terrorists will not stop until our country is destroyed, and neither will we." Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. and it's said with great import oh and, yeah you know i could hear him saying it it's that guy, <laughs> yeah it's just slowed down in his presidential voice <laughs> you know and it's like that. and then at no moment does he get to the end and go what <laughs> what we've just done what no let's do that again <laughs> so sadly you haven't got one over pi as a oh, score. oh man which is very disappointing but, yeah um you have in fact 36 percent Yay! Which I think is your highest score so Ever. far. It is. Yeah. There you go. See, despite all your poisoning of the well, I came out <laughs> on top. So, podcast <laughs> listeners, I clearly need your help to full mark. If you think you can make up a convincing fake Trump quote, then share this episode on Twitter. Include your quote in the hashtag fallacious Trump. I'll pick the best one and you'll be podcast famous. So this is the part of the show that this week at least is called Congressional Dish is not a logical fallacy because I'm joined this week by Jen Briney, the host of the Congressional Dish podcast. And just to let you know before we get into it, this interview was recorded a couple of months ago before HR1, the Democrats bill, made it through the House. So my guest this week is the host of the Congressional Dish podcast, Jen Briney. Jen, welcome to Fallacious Trump. Thanks so much for having me. So for anyone who doesn't already listen to, to Congressional Dish, tell us about it. What's the, the idea behind the podcast? 
Well, the idea is basically it was my way of finding out what people in Congress were doing with my money and in my name. And because I, like so many Americans, had no idea how Congress worked for the first few years, my whole shtick was I would read every bill that passed the House of Representatives. It was kind of like a learn while doing experiment. And what I learned is so much. (laughs) I'm still learning. Um, But pretty much, it's almost impossible to read every bill. Um, There's so much that happens in Congress that I would need an entire army of journalists to help me cover everything. So I'm just learning the importance of how the system works and, and what our role is in the world. And it's really a, a sourced piece of my journey to understanding what my country is doing. Because <laughs> what I think is really important is, um, you know, I'm on my own journey to figure out what's happening. But in my show notes, I give people all of the um, sources to everything that I talk about. So it's it's journalism. But at the same time, I don't have all the answers. I'm looking for them. So I'm trying to find that happy medium of giving information, but also finding it at the same time. Excellent. And you're giving other people the opportunity to go away and do their own research at the same time as well. So how do you choose what uh, bills to to talk about? Is it based on the kind of the impact you think they're going to have or how interesting they'll be to talk about or, or what is it? Well, that's been the hardest part for me is I'm still struggling with figuring out what I should cover and what I shouldn't. Because back when I first started this, I was trying to read every bill. And then when that became impossible, I had this responsibility that I wasn't expecting where I do have to pick and choose. And so for the last two years, the Republicans have had full control of government, which was a new situation for me. So I focused on the things that they were working on the hardest and things that became law. And there's still so many laws that they passed that I haven't been able to touch. They did so much work in those two years. And so now I'm in a completely different situation. I've never in my six years of doing Congressional Dish have seen the Democrats in control of the House of Representatives. And we also have a Republican president now. So I'm just finding with every Congress... I don't really know how to pick because there's not going to be as many laws this time. So the strategy I was just using isn't going to work anymore. Um, So honestly, like it's really when I sit down to do the next episode, it's whatever piques my interest, whatever I feel is super important and just shouldn't be missed. Um, But yeah, that it's an interesting question. That's one of the hardest things that I deal with is what to what to talk about. You mentioned you've been doing it for six years, um, and the, and the show has had to evolve over that time with the different different congresses that have come in. What uh, impact did did Trump have on the show? Did it did you kind of change the format or the content, or, or did you just kind of focus on different things? What what effect has that had? Um, yeah, I did have to change things because of his ability to sign the laws. Because when I started doing the podcast, the dynamic was that there was always divided government. The Republicans had the House of Representatives the whole time I've been doing this. And I always had President Obama stopping a lot of what they were trying to do from becoming law. The big switch in the 115th Congress was that Trump was there and he would sign the things the Republicans were able to pass with or without Democratic help. And so that whole dynamic really changed how I had to attack 
the the Congress because there were certain things that I could kind of brush off as impossible, like the the effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act. That's the the best example I have. Back in the Obama years, he was never going to sign anything into law that destroyed his health care system, but Trump would. And so that became a very real danger in a way that it really wasn't just a couple of years ago. So that's how he changed my job, where it was like things that I wasn't too worried about before I became extremely worried about. And it did change the direction of the show because I had to start paying a lot more attention to what the Republicans were doing that actually had a chance. Okay. And you go into such a lot of detail in the stories that you cover, the, the bills that you cover. Do you do all of that research yourself? Or do you have a team that kind of helps you? How, how does that work? Yeah, the research is all me right now. Um, you know, I had a researcher who was helping me for two months and I just couldn't afford to keep them. So that was tragic. Um, yeah, I could use research help, but right now it's all me. And, and you know, that's okay. It's It's my favorite part. It's the stuff that I enjoy doing. But there's just so much information that gets by me, and that's what keeps me awake at night. But, um, but yeah, it's just me right now. Have you ever kind of done quite a lot of research into a story, or gone gone far into it, and then decided actually this isn't interesting enough to cover? Or oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. We call those duds, okay. where I watch an entire hearing, or I watch a couple hearings on a topic, and there just isn't anything there. Um, there's also bills that I've read where I look at the title and who wrote it. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a scandal. And then it's nothing. That's one of the most frustrating parts is if I start an episode cycle without really having an episode, I can waste an entire week researching stuff that there's no there there. So yeah, that's, um, that's a problem. <laughs> it does happen, but it's also usually in a good way. So as a, you know, as a member of society, when that happens to me, it's usually because I was seeing something that's not actually there. So at least when it happens, it's, it's in a way that makes me happy just as a person. <laughs> <laughs> and by contrast, has there been stuff that you kind of started thinking, well, you know, I might spend five minutes on this and it's turned into something huge? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's my favorite thing in the whole world. Um, one of those, uh, there was a, this is the perfect example of this. There was a line in the State Department budget for the National Endowment for Democ Democracy. And I'm like, oh, what's this thing? Well, it turns out that this is a thing that has been involved in the United States trying to overturn the governments of other countries for decades. And once I jumped in that rabbit hole, I found out that a quarter of its money goes basically to the Democratic and Republican parties. And the people involved in this are like Madeleine Albright level <laughs> of party stars. And, um, and I picked that name on purpose because she's the head of one of these things. And it was just one of those, it was a line item, you know, and yeah. it just, it was this fascinating journey. I did a whole episode about it and that stuff happens all the time. It's my favorite part of the job. Excellent. Yeah. It does sound like that. Sometimes it's, it's, uh, the, the story seems to be going in one direction and then, and then you're like, well, and then I found this out and then that turned out to be really yeah. cool. So yeah. And my husband gets up at three in the morning. He's like, what are you doing? Why are you still awake? I'm like, I found out these things. <laughs> <laughs> so when I'm manic, he knows there's a good episode coming. <laughs> so how would you describe your own political views? Oh, ever evolving. Um, yeah. I, I mean, this podcast has completely changed the way that I see the world to the point that, you know, when I was 18, 
I voted for George W. Bush, a Republican president, because my parents were Republican. I mean, I really was that basic. It's I was raised by Red Sox fans, so I'm a Red Sox fan. I was raised by Republicans, so I'm a Republican. It just that's as much as I thought about it. And now, I mean, they started a war. And one of my best friends had to go to Iraq twice. You know, so that definitely changed my mind on like party loyalty. And then when I started doing the podcast, I, I wasn't looking for this, but I couldn't help but see how these bills and laws are really written to help companies make money. And in a lot of ways that hurt the workers, hurt people like me. And it was not just the Republicans. It's it's the Democrats, too. So what I'm seeing is we're told that the two sides in this country are left versus right and red versus blue and liberal versus conservative. But really, it's it's these corporate interests versus the rest of us. And sometimes the the priorities overlap, but most of the time they don't. And I was just blown away by how once you start seeing that dynamic, it's impossible to unsee. And I just, I wasn't expecting it. And it's it's changed who I am and how I see everything. So that kind of level of, of the influence of corporate interests and stuff, that's led you to your value for value model, hasn't it? Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, back in the beginning, I kind of had to do a listener supported model because advertisers won't even talk to you until you have 5,000 downloads per episode. And I wasn't there yet. I'm beyond that now. But but back in the day, it was kind of like, oh, so I kind of need to finance the fact that I have no job right now. And so I was forced into it in the beginning. But then as the advertisers started asking to be on my show, that's when I had to ask the big question of, you know, what is it about the media that is stopping them from talking about the stuff that I'm talking about. And I think it's the fact that their paychecks come from advertisers. So if Boeing, for example, is paying for these television journalists, which they are, you watch TV, like who's buying a plane? The reason that Boeing has advertisements is not about us. It's about paying them. And so you're not going to hear about the run-up to war. You'll hear about when the war starts, but you're not going to hear the two years that preceded that. And so I was looking at that dynamic and I was like, I just don't want to even set myself up to let that happen to me. You know, like I want to be able to be accountable only to my listeners and to have my customers be my listeners instead of my customers be the advertisers. And so now that I'm just I'm telling advertisers all the time, like, I'm sorry, I don't accept advertising on my show. Um, I'm actually even more happy that I made that decision because it's it's a beautiful community that we've created. I'm not afraid of saying anything because I've definitely said stuff that's controversial and people do fire me, but just as many people start paying after I say it. So it's like, I'm really not afraid of saying anything that I believe to be true, no matter how different it is from the common wisdom. And I would not have that freedom without my funding model. I believe in it so strongly in a way that I didn't know if I would when I started, but it's just... It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And right now we're in an interesting position because we've had, I think it was over a thousand journalists from a bunch of different publications just get fired. And yeah, so there's a big yeah. conversation right now about how do we fund journalism. This method is working. You know, if you trust your audience and you serve them and you serve them well and they trust you and you prove where you're getting your information from, 
people will voluntarily pay for things they believe in. So um, it's giving me a renewed faith in journalism. It's giving me a new renewed faith in my fellow man, you know? Um, But like I said, it's also difficult because, you know, it, it takes a long time to build. So I had a researcher, I couldn't afford him. Like it was, it's, it's working, but at the same time, I don't have Rachel Maddow money and I could use it. (laughs) So, yeah, I, but I have the freedom that she doesn't. So I'll take the freedom any day. Do you think that freedom is, is inherently impossible in mainstream journalism? Is there anyone in, in what would be considered the mainstream media who you think is doing a good job and standing up for kind of truth or, or is it just impossible to do that? You know, I think they're all trying to stand up for truth. I mean, I remember when Rachel Maddow got the MSNBC job because she was a podcaster. I was, I listened to her all the time and her big thing was was issues of, she she was, yes. And she, her big thing was issues of war and peace. And I remember for three weeks, she had a conversation with us, with her audience where she said, if I go to MSNBC, I can't talk about these things anymore. They're owned by a defense contractor. I know this. Yet at the same time, all the other things I talk about, I will have a microphone that is so much more powerful than I have now. So she made the conscious decision to go to MSNBC, understanding that she would be muzzled. And she has been. But at the same time, we know what fracking is because she ended up with that microphone. Sure. So I think we have very good people in the mainstream media that are making those kinds of choices. But is it possible for someone like me to work there right now? No, it's absolutely not possible because, you know, Jank Junger, he tried to work for MSNBC. He was their number one show and they still got rid of him because he was not the establishment and he was making the establishment mad. That really happened. There's a whole documentary about it. Yeah. And actually, I've met Jank, so that's how I also <laughs> know that it happened. But, um, you know, they fired Phil Donahue. They fired Jesse Ventura. You just can't, you just can't point out how the corporatocracy, for lack of a better term, is rigging our laws while being paid by them. I just don't think it's possible. So the, this kind of fairly recent model of podcasting and YouTube, uh, things like that, is that, do you think, the future of journalism? Is that how people are going to get their news? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. And I know that it's, it's spreading. You know, there's a great... Um, there's a great publication called The Intercept. It's an online publication. They do have podcasts, but they are 100% supported by their readers and their listeners. And it's working for them and they are fearless in their journalism. And so, yeah, I think it's catching on. I think it's... Uh, yes. My short answer is yes. I think <laughs> this is the future of journalism. And because also we've just seen how the advertising model has failed. You know, like that, we just had a bunch of journalists fired. Newspapers are going down because digital basically sucked all the advertising um, out of their um, their businesses. And it wasn't just advertising. I mean, there were content decisions that were made and there were bad decisions that were made going back many, many years. But I just don't think that relying on advertisers for everything is the way to go. And I think we're now starting to really see the downsides of that. And, um, and people are going to try a new way. And I'm hoping to lead the charge in that or be one of the people anyway. So going back to Congress, what are you optimistic about for the coming year in Congress? What, what do you see coming down the pipe? The number one thing that pops into my head is HR1. It's in the House of Representatives, which is now run by the Democrats. And they've made their number one bill, HR1, stands for House of Representatives 1. 
um, a bill that would really solves so many of the problems that we have with our electoral system. Like it makes it much easier for people to vote. It it starts a a process that will end up with automatic voter registration, which we should have anyway. God knows that the government knows where we live. (laughs) So the fact that we have to register, it's ridiculous. And so they, they make that a thing of the past. The most exciting thing about it would be the redistricting plans. So instead of the state's um, creating the districts. But the problem was with that is that whoever controls the Secretary of State's office, whatever party, is able to rig the districts in their favor. And it happens all the time. Instead of allowing that to be the way the districts are created, they would have independent commissions that would create the districts. I mean, that would be huge. They have some campaign finance ideas that I'm not a huge fan of. But it's still... It's a bill that is looking at the real problems that we have here. And they've made it their number one priority. And so I don't think that this has any chance of becoming law specifically because of the the voting rights that are put in place, the Republican Party. I mean, there are certain things the Democrats do too. The redistricting, they do that too. But when it comes to restricting people's access to the polls, that's a Republican Party thing. And so as long as they control the Republican or the, the Senate, as long as the Republicans control the Senate, I don't think that this could ever become law. But the debate is going to be had. And it's going to be so fascinating to watch people defend and how they defend these things that keep us away from the polls and the rigging of districts. I mean, how are you going to defend this? I can't wait to see what they say out loud. And and then I'm also like the idea that for two years, they're going to craft this bill and then maybe it can become law in 2021, which would be amazing. So I actually have hope now that at the very least, there's going to be some attention paid to the problems that are at the root of everything else. Whatever your issue is, these are at the root of it. Money in politics and the rigging of our elections. I mean, I know that sounds extreme and I don't mean that they're switching votes, but when you stop people from voting and when you draw maps around your voters, it's, it's, a, it's a form of rigging. Um, we have to solve that. And it's finally going to be discussed in Congress for the first time since I've done Congressional Dish. So I'm very excited about that. I'm also, since we are on fallacious Trump here, very excited that the things that the Republicans and Trump want are going to be much harder to make into law. Much harder. (laughs) It is going to be more dangerous, though, as we've just seen with the shutdown. So that's also the concern is that every time we have to fund the government, there is an opportunity to shut down the government unless you make this thing law. So... That's going to get more contentious, but there's really only, I mean, once we fund the government for 2019, there's only two more times that this could possibly happen um, because we only have to fund the government once a year. Sort of. I shouldn't say that because (laughs) then they extend it like bits and bits. I don't know. But that's the one thing where I'm like, okay, this is going to get uglier. But giant tax cuts for the rich those days are over for the rest of these two years. Um, I'm really not afraid for the Affordable Care Act now in a way that I was just a few months ago. Um, So yeah, actually, the fact that nothing is going to happen is the thing that's making me the (laughs) most happy (laughs) about this new Congress. It's going to be interesting times. It's going to be, well, it's been interesting times for the last few years, but it's going to be an interesting couple of years in in terms of both the discussions that they're going to have and and some of the hearings that I think they're going to come from from um, the House of Representatives. 
Totally. And that's why for this next Congress, one of the ways I plan to tackle it is to watch a lot more hearings and give people the highlights because hearings can easily be three, four, five, six hours. But, you know, usually there's one storyline that that's really the most interesting thing. So if you just cut the the fluff, you can really hear um, the best conversations. And I'm going to do a lot more episodes like that because actually, as we record this, this is the first day of hearings in the 116th Congress and there's already some good ones. So I'm, I'm super excited. It's the, it's going to be good. I think it's going to be, at least for my show, <laughs> it's going to be good. Um, but it'll definitely be fun to watch at the very least. Excellent. So if people want to find out more about you and listen to your show, where should they go? So Congressional Dish is available anywhere you can find your favorite audio. We're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, we're on Pandora. And then you can also find all the places that you can hear it on congressionaldish.com, which is also where you can get the sources, because I do think it's, it's important to know where I'm getting this stuff from. Jim Briney, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Yeah, I really like that interview. And I, what I really liked about it was that actually she's interested in uh, how Congress works and the issues that come up in her kind of work on the congressional dish mean that she's she gone through the transition from Obama to Trump and is it's more about the the kind of civil service and uh and how congress works with it and it's refreshing that trump doesn't make a big appearance in it so in yeah her enthusiasm yeah and her and she's immensely fired up by the whole thing um and that that discovery that uh in that one line in the the budget or whatever it was that revealed that an enormous kind of uh buy-in uh, by big business and then that informs how she is funded which I yeah. thought you know shows tremendous integrity it's great and and also reveals that the the swamp that crooked Hillary was creating <laughs> according to Trump where it's all about big business mm, do you know what it just continues even under yeah, Trump's yeah. premiership yeah and finally, some things we really don't have time to talk about. Sometimes there's just too much news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's such a lot of news. This, so much news. In this past week, it's been ridiculous. Um, it really we, is that we don't have time to talk about it. It's just... Yeah. We've, um, we've had to put this amount. recording off by a few days because of work and because Mark was a little bit ill. Um, and... And during that time, I've actually just, replaced four of these stories. Just in those <laughs> because, two days. Because yeah. too much happened that I had to yeah. put, fit in there somewhere. So yeah. anyway. Yeah, it's unbelievable, isn't it? So Trump met with Border Patrol agents in Calexico last week where he had a message specifically for those seeking political asylum in the US. Bring me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning. No, wait, that's the wrong quote. He said, we're full. Our country's full. Can't come in. After urging agents on camera to violate international law, he allegedly told them behind the scenes to defy any judges that gave them any trouble. After Trump left the room, agents asked their leaders for advice and were told they should follow the law instead of the president's instructions. On the same trip, according to CNN, Trump told CBP Commissioner Kevin McAleenan to close the border and told him he would pardon him if he ever went to jail for denying US entry to migrants. 
Whoa. So, Kirsten Nielsen, whose legacy will be the most heartless and law-breaking immigration policy the US has known in at least 70 years, wasn't heartless and law-breaking enough for Donald Trump, who accepted her resignation on Sunday evening so he can move immigration policy in a tougher direction. Okay, tougher than separating families, putting kids in cages, enacting a policy that a Quinnipiac poll in June 2018 found that 66% of respondents are against. Have no sympathy for her saying how she did her best in difficult circumstances. It's the humans on the border we need to worry about. And I quote Lady Liberty herself, those huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. The Washington Post uncovered evidence of a Trump administration plan to release illegal immigrants into sanctuary cities as retaliation against Trump's political rivals. The White House initially said that the idea had been floated and rejected. But as usual, Trump took a giant shit on the official response and announced that he was totally thinking about doing it, saying, We'll give them an unlimited supply. Let's see if they have open arms. Aside from the fact that promising immigrants free trips to New York, Chicago and San Francisco probably won't discourage them, Mm -hmm. Trump probably didn't expect the positive reactions from multiple mayors, such as Philadelphia's Jim Kenney, who said the city would be prepared to welcome these immigrants just as we have embraced our immigrant communities for decades. There you go. Bring me your tired, your poor, your huddle masses. Yes. On April 11th, Trump tweeted out a screen cap from Lou Dobbs' Fox Business show purportedly showing his approval rating in a Georgetown Institute of Politics and Public Service national survey at a robust 55%. But it is actually fake news. Fox Business Network themselves, no less, said so, issuing an on-air correction later that day, acknowledging that Dobbs's coverage of the poll was not entirely accurate. Yeah, no shit. In the, the same poll, 49% said Trump had the wrong approach on many issues, 58% disapprove on how he handles health care, 57% said they think it's time to give a new person a chance in the 2020 presidential election. Ever keen on not perpetuating fake news, Trump, of course, left the tweet up. Yeah, that 55% was actually his disapproval rating, Um, whereas his approval rating was at 43% in that poll. (laughs) It said that 55% had an unfavorable impression of Trump. That's what they put. And and they they put that in the wrong column, basically. They put it as his (laughs) approval rating, and it wasn't his approval rating. (laughs) So instead of saying... Uh, we meant that to be disapproval. Not they just said not entirely accurate. Not entirely accurate. Yeah, not the approval rating accurate. should have been at it should have been forty three percent, not fifty five percent. He was He's in the wrong anywhere hole. near fifty five. <laughs> no, no wonder he kept it up. For Christ's <laughs> sake. It's been three weeks since Attorney General William Barr cherry-picked, sorry, summarised the Mueller report, and word came through today that the redacted report will be released to the public on Thursday morning. Will it be a nothing burger? Well, the New York Times reported last week that several members of Mueller's team felt that Barr did not accurately portray their findings, Mm -hmm. adding that the evidence they uncovered of obstruction was, quote, alarming and significant. They also revealed that the report had been prepared with summaries of each section, which were designed to be released immediately to the public and would require very little, if any, redaction. I bet Trump's really looking forward to Thursday and the world finally seeing just how totally exonerated he is. Totally. Ever wish you didn't have to do math? Smart cookie-in-chief Sarah Sanders is saving us that nightmare by saying, 
I don't think Congress, particularly this group of congressmen and women, are smart enough to look through the thousands of pages that I would assume President Trump's taxes will be. I certainly don't trust them to look through the decades of success the president's had and determine anything. Well, certainly not determining success, I would suggest. Her argument seems to be that they don't do their own taxes. Presumably they get people to do them. Therefore, they can't judge them. Well, duh, you just get the people who do do them to look at them. Like the auditors that have supposedly been looking at Trump's for him in the two years since he got elected. Because you know he can't determine anything himself. Yeah, and and a year before he got elected as well. Yeah, yeah. I think if, exactly. if it takes the IRS three years to audit your taxes, that, yeah. that doesn't look good for you. That's no. not because they're good. <laughs> the latest indictment to come out of the Russia investigation has confused Republicans who really want to be excited about the opportunity to, to mention Obama in the same sentence as a criminal. Freeze-dried Skeletor doll Kellyanne Conway got a little too excited and tweeted... Finally, White House official indicted in connection with Mueller investigation. Of course, Twitter was quick to remind Kellyanne about the existence of Michael Flynn. All the excitement is about Gregory Craig, who was indeed Obama's White House counsel from 2009 to 2010. The thing is, he's being charged with making false statements to investigators about work he did for Ukrainian officials two years after he left the White House. By that time, he was working with someone called Paul Manafort. Uh, you remember yeah. him? He's the convicted felon who ran Trump's election campaign. <laughs> yeah, finally. Freeze-dried skeletal doll. Love that. <laughs> French President Emmanuel Macron was Trump's guest on a visit to Mount Vernon in Virginia, which, if you didn't know, is the former home of George Washington. Trump was puzzled as to why Washington didn't name any of his property after himself, because... You've got to put your name on stuff or no one remembers you. <laughs> this from the man occupying the White House up the road in Washington the capital city of the United States, which admittedly isn't in the state of Washington, but even so. Even former President George W. Bush consumed several presidential biographies while in office, presumably upside down and in picture book form, but Trump's lack of interest in presidential history, said historian John Meacham, means that he has basically thrown out the one data set available to him. We don't have anything else to study. It's all you got bit like being a property developer without having, having read about how to do it or being a, a CEO without studying other CEOs' seven successful habits. Ah, yeah. So that's all the bad arguments and faulty reasoning we have time for this episode. You can find the show notes at fallaciousTrump.com and if you hear Trump say something stupid and want to ask if it's a fallacy, our contact details are on the contact page. And if you think we've used a fallacy ourselves, notwithstanding poisoning the well, let us know. And if you've had a good time, please give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can support the show on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ftrump, just like our newest patron, Keelin Sumitovich. Keelin Sumitovich. Fantastic. Thank you, Keelin, joining and paying us money and listening to our stuff. It's great. You can also connect with us and other listeners in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash fallacious trump. All music is by the outbursts and was used with permission. So until next time on Fallacious Trump, we'll leave the last word to the Donald. That's right, go home to mommy. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>